Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, and more and more of you seem to be, uh, can you go online and review it? Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Give us a review, post some comments, give us a mark out of five. I mean, five would be lovely, but at least a four. Uh, and that's all very good for the mumbo-jumbo charts when people find the podcast. Or just tell your friends. It's also that simple. And if you enjoy the podcast, why not join me live on Times Radio every Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. But here on the podcast, we always bring you the best bits, the big thing, uh, which we always do at 11 o'clock on the radio. We always bring you that on the podcast. Today, we're picking over the polls with Chris Curtis and Paula Surridge. What's really going on? Who's up and who is down? Is Boris Johnson really as popular as he thinks he is? Is Labour really making the gains that they need to be making? Uh, we'll do that in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Thursday, it's Night at the Marriott, which is India Night and James Marriott. The thing I want to talk about, because there's lots of sort of things floating around in the ether, and if we could try and, I was quite like we could sort of find a thread that runs through uh, all of them. Um, it's sort of, it, it, it's a, I suppose it is a question of trust in Boris Johnson, or, or more a question of at what point uh, does he have to run on a record where, where it's not about promises, but it's about delivery? Because you've got you know, what's going on with trains in the north today. You've got what's going on with social care today. That was going to be fixed. And then the, there's some small points to uh, get across. Uh, there's the question of migrants and Priti Patel saying, oh, this asylum system is all uh, gone wrong, isn't it? As if she's got nothing to do with it. Um, and, a, and I wonder whether the Labour Party is focusing on the wrong thing. It's not about sleaze. It's about holding Boris Johnson to his promises on, on delivering you know, it's sort of interesting second jobs, but actually, you know, if you were promised a train and it doesn't turn up, or you were promised you won't have to sell your house to look after your parents, uh, then, uh, or, you know, if you were promised that migration was going to be got a grip off, um, that's sort of real world things. Uh, India, am I right or wrong? Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> the combination of um, sleaze and uh, broken promises, such as those about to be announced later this morning on HS2, is is, is really not good. And I think that People, uh, you know, the red wall should see evidence that Brexit was worth it. I think um, Johnson should really listen to uh, to, the, to his metro mayors, you know, to people like Andy Street in the West Midlands, um, Ben, somebody in Tyneside, name escapes me, begins with an H. Houchen, uh, Andy ben Burn- Houchen, 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 the Houchen, Houchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Andy Burnham in Manchester and so on. He should really listen to what those people have to say about local priorities and he should really act on them because I think people who supported him in the North and now feel pain about Brexit slash COVID, whatever, wherever you want to allocate the blame, um, but I think mostly Brexit, need to see, I think, intelligent uh, arrangements or accommodations made with Europe so that they then get buggered about when they go on holiday or need care for their elderly parent or indeed, you know, are looking for a waiter in a restaurant. I think he's won Brexit. He doesn't really need to be kind of strutty and muscular about it anymore or to batter Europe. Having said that, if the economy works, then, you know, I suppose it doesn't matter how many people are being paid 800 quid an hour. Um, and trains, it'll be interesting to hear Grant Shapps it does look like they promised a thing, they got the votes in, and now the thing has gone in the bin. I mean, yeah, not good. Uh, what do you think, James? Yeah, I always think it's really interesting with um, when you're attacking, as a line of attack for the opposition, when you're attacking a politician, that question of what's priced in. And always an interesting question about Sleaze is, have, have voters elected Boris Johnson just thinking, well, he doesn't look like the most um, uncorrupt man, you know, um, sort of expecting a level of chaos and if not if not if they weren't exactly wanting corruption not being necessarily very surprised when it happens and is there a danger that when that's your line of attack as you say that you're just reinforcing people kind of know but have sort of when they've weighed up the political balance in the ballot box have said this is the this is what we're prepared to take we, we think we know this about boris johnson none of this is very surprising to us and i as you say i wonder if starmer is better off um going for the kind of substance the failure to deliver because i think what the other thing that Boris Johnson perhaps has in the minds of voters is being very dynamic, um, sort of full of enthusiasm. And if you can kind of puncture that and say, well, actually, dynamic about what? Where is this energy directed? Nothing, nothing is actually happening. Maybe, maybe as you say, that's a more, that's a more effective line of attack because, you know, um, Boris Johnson doesn't have a shining reputation is maybe not uh, the startling, the startling headline um, <laughs> that, um, you know, will really, will really shock, will really shock everyone. The other thing that I thought uh, watching uh, Prime Minister's questions yesterday was that um, Keir Starmer called him both uh, a coward and corrupt. And I, there was something about, and I saw, I, I amused a little bit about this on Twitter last night, and then obviously got a whole load of people got very cross with me. But the, the two things, to, coward doesn't quite, he's either the sort of mastermind of a great corrupt conspiracy to line his own pockets. Coward sort of seems a bit sheepish and not really in control of events and... and um, and then therefore not the, 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 the mastermind. And I just wonder whether these words, they're all a bit sort of contradictory as, as an attack. Yeah, and there's... Or James. Oh, sorry, no, no, please, India. Oh, um, well, yes, uh, I agree. I think the problem is, and I think it's a fairly insurmountable problem at the moment, the problem is that Starmer's, you know, full of substance and says all sorts of interesting things and is forensic, da-da-da-da-da, the usual, but he looks like the swatty boy, shiny-cheeked, who's bought an apple for teacher, and Boris Johnson looks like the naughty person in that, in that particular context, I mean, when they're facing each other. And Boris Johnson looks like the person you'd want to hang out with at break. And it's really difficult, I think, for Starmer to get any traction, no matter how weighty what he's saying is, no matter what he's targeting. Because in the context of Boris Johnson, he's always going to look, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, he's always going to look 
a bit kind of square and swatty and unimaginative and unfun. And it's really, un it's terribly unfortunate. But I, I don't really see how he moves away from that, whatever his line of attack is. Yeah, and I was, I was, yeah, I, there's just something about, you know, he said at party conference, Boris Johnson's not a bad man. Now he's corrupt, but he's also mm. a coward. Yeah. You know, um, mm. uh, he, he's, uh, you know, he, does, he doesn't take the, t yeah, it's, there's, there's just something. And that coupled then with, you know, you know, I suppose the thing is, if, if all this stuff is priced in, Boris Johnson, bit dodgy, bit of a mess, bit of a lad, whatever, if all that is priced in, then tell people they've just not got what they were promised. That yeah. seems to be yeah. as a... As a as a place to go, that as a um, yeah. that that slightly might might be more effective. Um, James, um, let's talk about right now. I normally love your column, yes, uh, and I, I feel like I've finally reached a point now where you've 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 outgrown me. <laughs> I um I you know I liked your early stuff. I could get with that, and now. It, right, talk me through your column. Sell your column to me because I think it's really interesting, but I'm not sure I've got the brain power to uh, fully understand it. No, you're right, and I I I I admit that this week may have been uh, may have been a little bit out uh, a little bit out on the limb, um, and maybe I didn't attack the subject in the way that in the way that I you know would have hoped to. Um, but no, I think it's a really no, clever, no, interesting really issue. Really good. No, no, exactly no, no, no. No, that's very nice. You've not, you've not, you don't have to say that. Um, I'm always, I'm always aware that this is, a, this is a risk. Um, so, yes, this is, this is another hard to explain one on the radio. But just something um, I keep reading a lot about uh, recently, and one of these kind of themes that popped up that I thought I should write about was um, our obsession with um, status and social hierarchies and who's in charge and where do we, where do we sit in the, um, you know. Do humans have this innate need to um, know where they sit in the kind of social hierarchy of um, their of, of you know society and um, among the people you know? And this is it's, it sounds like a kind of slightly kind of weird thing, but it's something that keeps cropping up. And um, the person, so one of the big things of um, you've probably come across Jordan Peterson, this kind of controversial Canadian philosopher, and he has got. Um, immensely famous um, with this philosophy that's all about this thing that he calls the dominance hierarchy, uh, which is to do with, um, you know, the whole of the human social world is about knowing who's, who's the boss, where you sit, how important you are relative to other people. And it's all about climbing up this thing called, that he calls the dominance hierarchy. And I was just in the column saying, why do we suddenly seem so obsessed with these ideas of hierarchy and status and knowing where we are relative to other people? And I was saying, I think it's probably ultimately to do with this kind of um, maybe wider feeling of um, insecurity and uncertainty about the world um, that is a kind of, I think is a very kind of 21st century thing. And in the column, I was looking back to uh, the 1960s, where I think the mood of the time was very much about like, how can we dismantle these hierarchies that rule society? How can we stick it to the man? Um, how can we kind of dismantle the establishment? And I think that kind of very sort of anti-status obsessed mood of the 60s is kind of maybe disappearing a little bit. And in a more anxious time, um, people are once again a little bit more sort of obsessed with like where do they sit relative to people um and things like that if that makes if that makes any sense hopefully has that clarified yeah, so, a bit? So, so here's a question what impact do you think uh social media is having because yeah i think that, that's... does that does that make everything everyone more equal and meritocratic in that we you know we all think we you know we all think our own views are terribly important and you know i can shout on social media in the same way that donald trump or boris johnson can or does it make us more aware of that person's got more followers, that person's an influencer, that person's 
on a nice holiday that person you know is doing more interesting things than i am yeah i think that's completely true and i, I wish I, I wished i'd had a chance to mention that in the column um i was talking to someone recently and i bet this isn't an isolated experience he says that when he goes on twitter um he doesn't um he doesn't scroll through his twitter timeline he just kind of sits and look at how, looks at how many followers he's got and thinks about how many followers that is relative to other people why doesn't he have more followers um and i think everybody now has this like on on Twitter, on Facebook, you have this kind of, you have these literal concrete, like people are voting on how important and popular you are. And everybody can see that. And then that really affects the way that you um, experience the world socially. The other interesting thing, I think, about whether Twitter is democratic is, um, I've been reading a little bit about um, the phenomenon of, um, you know, like social media pylons, um, what the mechanics of those are on um, websites like Twitter. And when you look into those, what, um, the dynamics of Twitter pylons and, you know, when things go viral is what that really shows is that Twitter is in some ways quite undemocratic. And the people who really have power on Twitter are the people with loads and loads and loads of followers. And they're these big hubs, you know, pumping out, um, pumping out stories, you know, making, you know, causing pylons, making things go viral um, because the algorithm so massively favors people with lots of followers. Relative to that, other people with few, with few Twitter accounts are still quite unimportant, although you might randomly get your moment of fame. Um, I think, yeah, Twitter is an incredibly hierarchical place, um, which we can see as humans as something that's reinforced by the way the algorithm works, which literally just assigns you huge quantities of power based on uh, how many followers you have, if that makes sense. It does. It does. India, your take on this. I think social media, I think social media will eventually drive even the sanest person completely mad. I mean, it's a recipe for social anxiety. You know, either you haven't said the clever thing or you don't live in a beautiful house or your holiday is a bit basic or your dog looks weird or, you know, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was interested thinking about James's column in. Actually, I wanted to ask James what he thought, um, because I think I occasionally think I don't always think this, but I sometimes think that the idea of meritocracy is founded on a kind of dodgy premise, which is that it's somehow uh, meritorious to be born with gifts like higher intelligence. You know, you're rewarding, you're, if you don't reward, you need to reward people for being born with merits. But, and if you don't, then what, the whole structure collapses, doesn't it? I mean, is that, is that right? If you're born clever, then obviously it's not, it's not as a, it's, I can't, I'm not. Yeah, no, I know, I know this is, this is one of my all time, I know exactly what you're saying. This is one of my all time top obsessions. Um, so I'll try and not talk for ages about it, but I, it fascinates me. And I think, yeah, I think in a meritocratic society where supposedly, although I'm not sure this necessarily actually works in practice, the people who are cleverest are rewarded. I just think that creates this huge, this huge stress because yeah. everything is a competition. And one of the, so, um, one of the most interesting phenomenons now is people, how people in um, high-status jobs like law and banking, people doing the very competitive jobs, work harder and harder and harder than ever. And I think for the first time in history, people doing very high-paid jobs work longer hours than people in the sort of least well-paid, doing the least well-paid jobs. Um, and that's because the idea of meritocracy, the idea that people who work hardest and who are cleverest... Um, are all in this sort of competition to get to the top. That just drives this like incredibly anxious, incredibly hardworking culture. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think, I think it makes a lot of people very miserable. I'm not sure what the better alternative is. Um, but there's a brilliant book on this called, um, called The Meritocracy Trap by a guy called Daniel Markovitz, which I recommend to everyone uh, that I think explains so much about um, all of that stuff and about society in general. Thank I mean, you. there we are. We've learned something. We've learned something. Put that on the list. <laughs> Matt, Matt can I just ask you a thing about the teeth necklace? Yes. 
they were his own tea. I'm really troubled by the tea snack because they were his own <clears> tea. <throat> so, yes. So I, there I was watching uh, BBC South last night because that's the local BBC that we get. And uh, they'd been watching, just on an item on people make hand-making jewellery. And the weather presenter said, oh, I used to make earrings for members of my family, but I'm not sure they ever really liked it. And the uh, <laughs> the newsreader said, I once made a necklace from teeth for a girlfriend. And, oh, yeah, oh, let's, in fact, let's take a listen. You ever made your own jewellery? I did used to make earrings for my friends and family for Christmas, but I don't think they're that, they were that impressed. I, I made once made a, a necklace out of teeth for a, a girlfriend. Oh, that's lovely. For a girlfriend? Yeah, it didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> should, we, should we have a look at the weather pictures? Yeah, should we just talk about... Oh, let's look at the weather picture. But, um, but, uh, but they were his own teeth. Yes, so he later, so I, I, I took a video of this and put it on Twitter, and he later clarified, this guy called Tom Hepworth, he later clarified, they were mine, the teeth, we were both consenting goths at the time, and it was acceptable back then. Yeah, I really don't think it was. But also, why didn't he have any teeth? Where were all these spare teeth <laughs> to be made into necklaces? Do you think it was his, his like, baby teeth? Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> Honestly, I howled with laughter. I, that's basically all I just spent all night last night. Um, what if, if you want to see the video? Because the look on the weather presenter's face is just like, ah, 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 the weather. James, have you? Uh, well, you haven't got rid of your baby teeth yet, have you? So, um, <laughs> no. I mean, I was necklace sold them. No, I, I was very weirded out by this, and I was trying to think about. Um, uh, what weird presents you've given or received. But I was just i was just remembering that as a child, I had an unfortunate reputation for giving very boring presents uh, because my parents are very badly organised, never went to a party. It would be one of those things where you stop at the, like, petrol station. Oh, the um, shame. Uh, yeah. And I'd be giving people, like, a torch or, like, some scissors. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it was not very... I think it didn't contribute to uh, me being very cool. <laughs> Indian Night and James Marriott there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just go online, get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Right, up next, we're picking over the polls. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now let's get under the bonnet and find out what's really going on in the political polls. I didn't know I hadn't heard these, so I didn't know what that was going to be. Uh, But unless I'm very much mistaken, that's Chris Curtis and Adele in the duet we were all crying out for, for (laughs) polling in the deep. Um, Perfect. Perfect. Chris, I didn't know you had it in you. Um, So, Chris Curtis, first of all, let's focus at the the high level big picture. First of all, Uh, what is happening with voting intention? Uh, You know, we're coming up to two years from the the general election, sort of midterm uh, blues potentially for the Conservative. What is what is the overall picture in terms of voting intention, both, you know, snapshot and trend? Yeah, and it is worth putting it in that context, I think, because obviously we know pretty much always that um, governments sort of struggle at this point in the parliament. Their poll leads tend to go down or evaporate in the first few years, often before then recovering in the run up to the next election. And it seems that basically this parliament is following so far, at least a, a fairly similar picture, albeit with some funny stuff at the start caused by the pandemic. The most recent polls have generally been showing that the Tory leaders disappeared or maybe they hold a small lead or some polls are actually showing a small Labour lead now. But basically, the parties have gone to neck and neck, which is quite a dramatic shift, obviously, from that landslide Conservative victory in 2019. I suppose the bigger question is what's causing it? Is it basically something that's happening very, very short term? in response to the latest sleaze allegations and everything that's been accused of the government and Boris Johnson over Owen Patterson, etc. I think that's obviously obviously part of it. We do know that's cut through. We do know the reputation of the Conservative Party has been damaged. More people see it as corrupt now than they did when we asked a similar question back in April. But I also think that um, there's a sort of longer term trend here. We have seen the Conservative lead in the polls falling near, nearly consistently since sort of the end of the vaccine rollout in April, May this year. There's lots of other ways the Conservatives have been damaged, most notably on economics. The view of them as the economically competent party is going down. They're no longer viewed as the party of low taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's actually going to be a lot more important um, coming out. Yeah, and if we sort of look at the polls again in a few months' time, it's to see if that sort of trend has continued and to see if the Conservatives have sort of stopped the bleeding on that front. Paula Sovich, is this a case of it's the economy stupid and if people are starting to feel the squeeze, you know, does actually, I don't know, the price of petrol have a bigger impact on the polls than Owen Patterson? It's quite likely that it does, um, but we don't really know. It's, it's almost impossible to disaggregate or decompose these movements into individual events because so much is happening all at the same time. And I think that's perhaps why things seem to be moving a little bit more now is that we've got lots of things happening at once so we're not looking at one event that's moving all voters we're looking at lots of events that might be moving different groups of voters around in different ways um, and uh, another thing that you've you've uh, highlighted several times i've seen in the past uh, paula is the role of the green party and where they're taking their votes from, because it seems that actually both Labour and the Conservatives, although neck and neck, are also you know down on where they were back in 2019. Um, uh, well, in fact, particularly the Conservatives, but the Labour Party sort of is also losing votes out to the Greens too. So there's quite a lot of is there sort of churn going on. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, we can't, you can't just assume because one party's up and another party's down that it's a direct swap. There is a lot of churn going on underneath the surface. Um, and that's taking two forms. So Labour have been losing some of their vote to the Greens, but it doesn't look as though it's just in the kind of usual suspect groups that we might expect, the youngest groups and, and the most politically engaged who tend to have um, a lot of concern about the environment. We're seeing quite high um, green vote predicted green vote shares in things like the, the the famous C2s, which we might think of as the manual working class. In some polls, that's getting up to over 15% saying they would vote green. So it seems that this, this rise in the greens is a bit more widespread. Now, that could be an effect of environmental issues having dominated the news for a few weeks, or it could also be something that we that, that we saw um, in early 2019 where we got a kind of none of the above effect <laughs> where where people are looking for somebody that they can vote for that isn't one of the big two parties because they've just kind of fallen out with with both of them the other thing that's going on under the hood though to to watch out for as well as talking about the greens a lot i also talk about the don't knows a lot um, yes, and one of, really that, <laughs> one of the things one of the things that's that's causing the polls to narrow at the moment is that there's far more undecided 2019 conservative voters than there are undecided 2019 labor voters the exact level varies what we might call house effects across pollsters but it's almost double the number the, the proportion of 2019 conservatives to 2019 labor voters who now say they don't know how they would vote and what that means is a lot rides on where those voters then end up in a few months' time. We saw this happen about this time last year, and most of them ended up kind of going back into the conservative fold, the, the vaccine rollout and so on, um, perhaps leading to that. Whether or not that happens again, if it does, if they go back to the conservatives, then we'll likely see conservative leads in the polls come, um, over the next few months. But if they start transferring to other parties, then that's better news for Labour. So that's what we probably call a floating voter. There's a, probably a great chunk of voters who voted Conservative last time, the vote Conservative next time and the time after that. But it's the ones who who don't know the sort of gateway drug to thinking about something else. They're they're up for grabs, but they haven't landed anywhere else. Yes, absolutely. And we might expect them to be some of those voters that voted Conservative for the first time in 2019 yeah. because they will have kind of less of that loyalty to a party. Less sticky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and Chris, um, the, another thing that I, I wanted to ask you about was, um, I saw you tweet about this this week, was um, how you track who uh, vote, how the people voted last time and how they're going to vote this time. And you were talking about about 10% of people who actually voted Tory in 2019 now think that they didn't. Yeah, so this gets a little bit under the hood, but it's quite important when thinking about polling, because obviously when we're speaking to the public, we want to make sure our samples are representative, representative not just of the population, but also those who are going to vote in the general election. So we make sure we've got the right number of old people, the right number of young people, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's also really important, though, to make sure you've got the right number of people that voted Conservative at the last election and voted Labour at the last election. Um, now, you do what you can to make sure you therefore collect that data on how people vote straight after the general election um, in order to, you know, because we know some people forget. Um, but that's not always possible. So we always have to do sort of these checks to see how many people have forgotten how they voted and 
now say they now think they voted for someone different. So we, we can adjust for that in our methodology and make sure our samples are still representative. We ran this test the other day. And what was quite interesting, as I said, was that, uh, that there does seem to be a lot. And this is actually quite often true. I think it's a mix of many things. Um, but yes, uh, about 15% of people who voted Labour um, now say they voted for a different party. And about 10% of those who voted for the Conservative Party think they voted for another party, most notably um, the Brexit Party or, or even UKIP in many cases. Um, although, yeah, there's also the Labour Party and a few other people in there as well. So it's a bit like the, the I know it's a longer term thing, but basically now nobody thinks they supported the war in Iraq. Uh, despite um, the polls at the time telling a telling a very different story, right? We need to move on. So that's the, that's a sort of headline voting intention for parties. Next up, let's take a look at leadership. Like a- <laughs> like a polling stone. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Right. Uh, so let's look. At, you sound so uh, depressed. <laughs> Well, you know, you, uh, you can critique your own. Maybe we should do a poll on uh, critiquing your own musical performance, Chris. Um, right, let's look at uh, leadership uh, ratings, approval ratings, and that sort of thing. Um, and one of the, the striking things, and maybe these things give us a bit of a clue, rather than just voting, you know, focusing on whether well, the Tories have a lead, we all stop ignoring the polls until Labour takes the lead. But Boris Johnson's personal ratings have been dropping quite dramatically, Paula. Yes, they have changed quite a lot over the last um, over the last couple of months. Um, it seems to be losing some of the shine that perhaps people attributed to him after the 2019 election. Although I think, as as I, as I said to you last time I was on, some of that um, impression that he was a hugely hugely popular leader in 2019 is itself a little bit misguided. Um, he was always quite a polarizing leader, so he was always quite unpopular with some with some parts of the electorate. Um, and it seems as though he's starting to lose some of the shine with the other parts of the electorate now as well. Chris, when I was looking at um, some of the opinion uh, polling, what struck me was it, and it seemed to be about around the same time, April, May this year, uh, Boris Johnson's approval ratings start dropping and uh, disapproval rate, you know, starts going up. Mm. At, at around the same time, Keir Starmer's ratings improve a bit. Uh, uh, actually, no, that's not right. His go down a bit. Basically, but his have been pretty level. Keir Starmer's mm. haven't gone sort of dramatically in either either direction. So what was going on back in April and May that you think sort of triggered that? And But, but Keir Starmer seems to be flatlining, not, you know, it's not that, that people are losing faith with Boris Johnson, so then being slightly more impressed by Keir Starmer. Yeah, it's certainly true that these two things are not moving symmetrically. If we look at the polling last sort of, spring or early summer what was really interesting for the first time in british politics in a very long time you had two the two most senior politicians in the country the the leader of the conservative party and the leader of the labor party were actually relatively popular and that's an incredibly rare situation to be in possibly to do with the pandemic and people being more willing to obviously give the government the benefit of the doubt but maybe as well the opposition and we seem to have moved back into the more standard position now of actually the two party leaders um <laughs> more people disliking both party leaders than than liking the party leaders so we saw a big drop off in Keir Starmer's numbers between sort of last summer and spring this year although as you mentioned they've basically flatlined ever since with Boris Johnson's numbers we saw quite a dramatic improvement during the vaccine rollout um earlier this year but then ever since that came to an end in May 
they've been going down fairly steadily, just in pretty much in line with voting intention, like we were talking about before, um, going going down fairly steadily. And now we're basically registering the lowest poll ratings for him we've recorded since he, um, his personal poll ratings for him that we've recorded ever since he became prime minister. We've particularly seen quite dramatic shifts on this idea that he's competent, just 23% now say he's competent, that he can be trusted to make the, the big decisions. Again, just 23% agree with that. And his sort of crucial strength, this idea that he's able to get things done. Um, 46% would have agreed with that statement back in May. That's dropped down to just 30% now. So lots of big shifts there. And when we compare his you know, the, the, the views of him now on all of these characteristics that we've been tracking with views of Theresa May in March 2019, so that was about four months before she was booted out as prime minister, he's actually behind her on almost every single metric that we, um, this is, this that we is tracked, which is... Go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, Paula was making this point that the um, uh, there's this sort of perception of Boris Johnson. He's the, he's the Heineken politician. He's the, 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 the politician that sort of reaches parts of the country that others can't. The, you, you know, we, we've, had, we've had politicians on the show talking about how voters said they were voting for Boris, not for the Conservatives. You know, this great election winner. That's the, that's the whole thing. And yet, the, at similar points in their premiership, in terms of attributes that you might think you might want on being decisive, trustworthy, brave, sticks to her principles, has the nation's best interests at heart, uh, is a strong leader, stands up for Britain's interests abroad, represents what most people think, in touch with ordinary people. Boris Johnson's now polling worse than Theresa May just a few months before she was ousted. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, I, I think the sort of it, it is still true that Boris Johnson does appeal to a slightly different, a completely different type of voter, Theresa May, to, to Theresa May, and he does a lot better job at holding together the Conservative coalition than Theresa May did. And you know, I don't think the Heineken politician description isn't accurate, but it is still worth remembering that the vast majority of people drink a beer that isn't Heineken. And, you know, it's and, and that's the problem. He's just not as popular as many people in politics like to think he is. And he's certainly not Teflon. And if things do go bad on the economy this this winter, I think he could be facing a really, really difficult situation coming you know, in a few months time. And, you know, I think if he starts losing these poll leads, of course, and suddenly the public are starting to say, well, maybe he isn't. Um, the best man for the top job. I do wonder if a lot of those backbench conservative um, MPs will uh, w- will also start agreeing with them. Can I really, really just add something yes, to that? Yes, Paula. Yeah. So I was just going to say, well, I mean, we've got this kind of image of a, of a leader who was really popular with, with their voters, and that was good. But when you now look at that, who would make the best PM question, there's really large numbers of 2019 Conservative voters who don't say that Boris Johnson would make the best Prime Minister. Lots of them say neither or they don't know. But that's quite interesting, I think, because that's amongst the group of voters who had voted for him not that long ago and now are quite unsure about whether or not he's the best person to be prime minister. Yeah, that's really interesting. We've picked up similar things with the uh, the focus group we do every month on, on Times Radio. The, 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 in fact, I think in the last couple of, couple of months, we've put them the straight question of Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak, and there's a much stronger... <laughs> Uh, enthusiasm for Rishi Sunak in that that situation. Right, so we've done the headline voting intention. We've done what voters think of the leadership, uh, Boris Johnson versus Keir Starmer. So, last up, what are the voters' priorities? (laughs) 
<laughs> the only thing it's amazing it's the only thing on times radio uh right uh that was uh the the voice of chris curtis uh duetting there with uh tina turner uh but let's take a look at uh voters priorities what do people actually care about because i suspect it's not all of the things that go on in, in westminster paula um uh, presu- you know we went, we've gone from sort of brexit to covid dominating as we slide to something more like normal politics what's sort of bubbling around is the big issues that the voters care about so i think that's a really important point that we've had at this period of brexit dominating and then covid dominating where there was actually quite a lot of agreement amongst people about what the most important issues that needed to be tackled were and i i think we're emerging out of that into something that looks more like the kind of um, oppositional politics that, that we're used to. We're starting to see different groups with different priorities. Um, now, there's, there's different ways of cutting it, and, and I apologise in advance for using Remain Leave as a sort of shorthand for this, um, but amongst Remain voters, it's really interesting that the environment now ranks almost as highly as health as, as one of the most important issues that, that's facing the country. Um, uh, over 50% of that group now, now give that. Whereas amongst um, Leave voters, we see the economy now bouncing back to the top of their, their concerns. Health is also featuring there, but immigration still features for that group as well. So we might be moving into a period of politics where not only do people disagree about, about what, what they want, they also disagree about what the priorities should be um, in terms of what the government should be doing and what people should be talking about. And Chris, when um, the Westminster Village or the sort of the, the, the media and political classes are talking about what we'd probably bracket sort of culture war issues, uh, whether that's statues or flags or the dumbing down of pantomimes or, or whatever it is, um, even trans issues, actually, how much of that is actually sort of in the minds of what we might call normal people? Oh, I mean, I mean, very little. Um, uh, these sort of a lot of these I, I mean they're not necessarily newer debates but the debates that have definitely popped up in the post-Brexit era really don't register um, on most people's radar a lot of the time um, and I think sort of because immigration and because Brexit was so dominant for many years and you know they've sort of been so, you know, welfare to a certain extent before that as well because they've sort of been um, labelled as culture war issues I think that anybody and you know which Westminster kind of ignored for probably slightly too long um, I think people now think that anything that sort of can be labelled as like a culture war issue must matter to the public. And when you ask people, you know, which of these political debates do you care about? A lot of these debates about statues, I mean, I haven't asked about pantomime specifically, but statues and um, uh, you know, issues to do with, with trans issues, they, they're very low at the list, if not right at the bottom of the list. So it, it isn't something that is, that is top of the minds of the public. It's definitely not as important as some of those older debates immigration brexit um welfare are not as important as them but particularly not as important going forward as health the economy and as as paul has said the environment that's been um that's been tipping up one other thing that's that i think is worth mentioning obviously we've got these massive debates which will dominate politics but there's also what i like to call the sort of community facebook group issues um and i think these are quite interesting because they quite often go under the radar until you do things like focus groups and suddenly people start mentioning them and then they come up again and again and it's basically the kind of issues that people are hearing a lot about um on 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 facebook and the reason i think it's worth mentioning is because one of the big ones um over the past few months that we've been hearing lots about 
is dog theft, which obviously you're talking about later. And I think it is quite interesting, you know, but so many people in focus groups will bring up dog theft and how much of an issue it is in their area. So I think it is interesting, again, the government, I think, particularly care about these sort of community Facebook group issues uh, that they are today um, doing something about it. That is interesting, the impact. Of and I suppose the thing about that, the community face group thing, is a lot of that is going on sort of below the radar uh, a, a bit as well. Uh, just by, uh, for actually, one more thing, Chris. Um, you and I, because this is how we uh, have fun, we were having a text conversation uh, a couple of days ago about the polling and what was happening. And you said to me, do you think they will get rid of him? And I had to ask the question, uh, do you mean Boris or Keir? Uh, because actually, if you looked at the polling and what was happening and approval and all of that, I mean, you could mount a case for either of them uh, having sufficiently discharged uh, colleagues to wonder if someone else might be doing a better job. Um, I suppose the Tories have more of a record uh, of doing something about that. Um, or are we wrong to even be bothering to have this conversation? If we are returning to sort of politics as normal, this is just midterm blues for the government. In terms of electoral success at the next election, we are at least a year away from from this really mattering. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I think the argument for why they they could get rid of Boris is because you know there's the the, the thing that the Conservative Party likes most about Boris Johnson is that he wins elections, and I think there's lots of people on the back benches, particularly a lot of the old. Oh, Chris, Chris, we've slightly lost you there. Are you still there, Paula? <laughs> I'm still here. I wasn't sure if I'd gone or you'd gone there. But... I know, it's the, it's the perils, the perils of tech. Uh, it, it, generally, that uh, instance, you just keep talking. Um, but, oh, he's back now. <laughs> we'll speak to Paul. If he's going to drop off like that, we'll speak to Paul. Um, uh, Paul, what, uh, what do you think about the prospect of, of change? Or uh, Because it does, you know, this isn't just one blip where the Labour Party have got ahead. You know, it does look like there's a bit of a trend emerging, but also government approval down, Boris Johnson's approval down, you know, crunchy stuff like the issues of trains and migration and social care you know you know do you think there will there would be a change i think it's possible but perhaps not likely so it does seem to be losing some of the shine and obviously that would some of this will depend on where that goes over the next three or four months if it bounces back because these don't knows come back to the conservatives um then that probably reduces it but there's also some questions i would think if you're expecting a really tough winter and you're somebody who thinks you might need the labor um, lead the Conservative Party. Do you want to take over at that point if things are going a little bit down the pan and, and you might be in a hung Parliament situation potentially come the next election? It might be for the for the really ambitious um, potential Conservative leader waiting until after an election might be more sensible. Uh, good top advice there for Rishi. Um, what, uh, <laughs> what, what, what last word to you, Chris? Do you think it's likely a change? Uh, well, I suppose the thing that we just because we haven't really talked about it yet and things are certainly getting worse for the Conservatives, it is still worth remembering that the polling still isn't great for the Labour Party. Keir Starmer's ratings aren't good. There's a lot of voters in particular that think he's too weak to do the top job. And while the Conservative lead on the economy is shrinking, just like with headline voting intention, most of that is going towards them trusting no one on the economy. Labour still, even you know, over a decade after the financial crash, still hasn't regained faith from the public on, 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 being, able to, on being viewed as being able to run the economy effectively. Top, top stuff. I feel like I've learnt loads here, which I now pass off as uh, all my own uh, wisdom and analysis uh, at a later date. Uh, lovely to, uh, to speak to you both. Uh, thanks very much for doing 
Rolling in the deep. Uh, no, polling in the deep. I've got even got that one. Polling in the deep. Polling in the deep. That's what we're calling it. Chris Curtis of Opinion. Paula Surridge, uh, Senior Lecturer in Political Sociology at the University of Bristol. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 